City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, City Limits, and uh, here we are. It's the third Wednesday of the month, therefore it's a, it's a housing day. And we're going to be talking in the first half of the program to Howard Morosi from People for Public Housing or several groups I think he's involved in, but he's going to update us on what's happening to the housing estates where they've already started, they've moved moved equipment in to start demolishing, etc. So we'll get some update on that. And um, the second half, we've got someone coming in from the Housing with Aged Action Group. And also, um, also we had a report, we mentioned last month, a report about the, east, the western suburbs and problems of finding accommodation and particularly suitable accommodation. And you've got someone lined up. Yeah, so we're going to be speaking to Tanya McColl. She's from the Northern and Western Homelessness Networks about about that new report about crisis accommodation. Right, okay. Mm. And that was Eugenia Jubchenko, and I'm Kevin Healy, and this is City Limits. Good morning, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Because of the rush getting here, I'm going to make a bit of noise, getting stuff out of my bag, uh, Eugenia, but... uh, it's been, of course, a week when uh, we've had some tragic news. I think, I think we've, I think people know we don't need to talk much about it, you know, except that, you know, we, we're down to, um, you know, governments that deny they uh, fostering racism or anything else when they attack refugees or attack Islam, all that. Are you talking about the, um, the New, Zealand New Zealand incidents? Yes, yeah, yes, it's terrible, yes. isn't it? Well, it's terrible, but uh, you know, I suppose the the ultimate in uh, the ultimate in um, being left speechless was uh, Peter Dutton yesterday saying he's proud of his role as minister. And uh, In uh, relation to that? In, well, in relation to his role generally, but, I mean, it has played a key <laughs> role. And uh, yeah. we've had, you know, I don't think anyone who listens to this show would ever would deny that the government has been whipping up Islamophobia, Islamophobia. and, and uh, general anti-refugee and anti anyone who's not white, essentially, in a country, of course, that stole itself, stole this country from the original people anyway. It's quite, it's quite astonishing. But uh, yeah, mm. that's, that's, that's that. And, uh, yep. and in fact, the, the Prime Minister talked about the need to get everyone together and all the usual rubbish when um, they, everything they do is in the opposite direction. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. always interesting yeah. to me how adamant those... Um, uh, yeah, Peter Dutton and his kind are when they're confronted with kind of being asked to reflect on their roles. Right. <laughs> There's absolutely no concession to human error oh, or oh, um, no. any kind of normal oh. self-doubt. Or oh, anything human at all, I would have thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, the the human error, never mind, I won't, I won't say what, <laughs> that's a bit too much. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you're, you're still riled up from your morning bike ride. <laughs> I am, and I, I, I threw a jumper on for some silly reason. I, I ignored the fact that the brekkie show said it was raining outside, so I went out, put a jumper on, and on the way, I, it was only very light rain, so I didn't really get very wet, but it, I had to take my glasses off because I couldn't see, and I realised the jumper was, it's a warm meeting where you don't need a morning, say that properly, Kevin, a morning where you don't need a jumper. 
So yeah. there you are. It was a very confusing one. I was riding in as well, and I got very sweaty underneath my raincoat. Yes, yes. Wet inside, oh, you wet took outside. the rate advice anyway. <laughs> I'm going to pour a cup of tea. You want a cup of tea? You got something in your hand? I've there. got one already. Thank you. Oh well, there mm, we are. I'll just I'm pour one There we are. Little mind. Okay, <laughs> now I'm going to. Um, uh, I, just a few items before, and we're going to be talking to Howard Morosi pretty shortly, uh, about quarter past or so, so that we won't rave on for too long this morning. But um, but I thought one of the uh, one of the most amazing stories. What you know, again, when Peter Dutton says he's so proud of what he's done, you, you're sort of left speechless. And this does leave you a touch speechless. News Corp Australia, which of course is Rupert Murdoch's um, empire has called for the top competition regulator to break up Google's operations to curb the technology company's, quote, abuse of its dominant market power. Mm. Rupert Murdoch. Mm. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a bit rich. What can you say? What can you, you say? You're quite intimate with um, Rupert Murdoch, aren't you? Oh, well, seven years he employed me. <laughs> the Australian arm of the global Murdoch family empire, which owns Sky Television and publishes newspapers, including the Australian Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun, etc., sees the global search engine and its advertising business as a direct threat to democracy. Oh, and its bottom line, that's News Limited, which is the real reason they're upset, of course. Um, Google threatening and undermining the security of funding of news and journalism strikes at the heart of our system of democracy, News Corp said in a submission to the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. <laughs> You'd think that. The Australian the Competition and Consumer Commission must decency. be their best friend. <laughs> you could have the decency to at least shut up. <laughs> But no. Um, and on that, on the same, on his uh, wonderful um, news outlet, the Herald Sun again, uh, last Friday, the only mention it made of the of the student march, and let's just comment that that was a quite magnificent. And, mm. and uh, Did you go to it? Or? I didn't go to it, but I was in the city later that afternoon, and I loved seeing all the small children and yeah, teenagers yeah. walking around with these placards, having a coffee afterwards. Yeah, I was coming home from somewhere, and I saw them all coming home, and I thought, isn't it wonderful, and uh, all these young kids. Yeah. But, and, um, yeah, just absolutely wonderful, but that's all we need to say on that. I think everyone knows it was wonderful. But the Herald Sun in the morning, the only story it carried about the student um, march on Friday was that uh, that that a college, Siena College, had had warned the kid, its students, that if they went to the march, they would fail their VCE assessments. Oh my and, gosh! Uh, yeah, that's right. So that was the only story. It was an anti-story. But further <laughs> back, further back in the book. Kids need schooling about our increasingly cashless society. Tap and learn its real money. And an, art, an article back in the book with a couple of happy school kids holding up money um, telling us we need to educate kids about money in a capitalist society. So that's where the kids yes. should have been. It's always good down. to hear, Kevin, that our education system is completely that's devoid right. of politics. <laughs> that's right. Oh, there's no brainwashing in our society. No. Unlike those rotten communists. Yeah. <laughs> I can recall, I've said this many times on B.A. Santa Maria, who was the head of the National Civic Council and the anti-Labour, anti-communist movement back in the Labour split days, um, he would, in fact, go on television and talk about communists brainwashing dear little children and in the same breath cry out for sc- state aid for Catholic schools. And, uh, <laughs> and he never, never even blushed. <laughs> Amazing. This is another interesting item, I thought. Um, the Financial Services Council, because as you know, all these bodies like insurance, etc., like to be self-regulatory. You don't want government intervening in government red tape. You can look after yourself. And I think the Royal Commission have proved that they could look after themselves very well. Um, 
But the Financial Services Council has dropped plans to launch its new life insurance code of conduct on July 1, and this is not a government body, it's a industry body, after stakeholders complained it was not written in comprehensible English and ASIC warned the process was being rushed and they go on to say it should be written in English and I thought, well, it's good practice with your insurance policies. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you've got to write something no one can understand or they might understand it. Yeah, totally. Um, That's bloody terrible, actually. And just just on... um, on what we mentioned last week about the bloke, um, the the architect bloke who wrote a very good article about the Apple about thing. About the Federation yes, Square yes, Apple yes. development, yeah. Um, it's worth noting that Melbourne City Council has also opposed it. Um, oh, fantastic. They voted against it. And so now it goes to the, the Heritage Council, or whatever it's called, the Heritage Body anyway, yep. um, for approval or non-approval with that against it as well. So there's a bit of hope there, mm. I think, but... We'll Fingers crossed. Yeah, we should get yeah. these um, people that we spoke to last year on again yeah, yeah. to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. Mm. Good one. Mm. Um, and um, just the other thing this week that was a positive story, again, was that high court decision um, upholding the, the rights of um, of a couple of um, Aboriginal peoples, the Nalgawuru and Nungali people, um, of for um, compensation for public works on their land and the, that took away their right to their own land, etc. And they were awarded um, 2.8, no, it was 1 point something, 1.3, I think it was, million in compensation. I can't find the figure here now, but they were awarded uh, a, a quite a large sum and, and it's now seen as a precedent for other groups who you know, have, have technically have title to their land, but effectively governments or whatever move in and just take over. Yeah. And it now entitles them under this high court ruling to quite large, comp- quite huge compensation, which is a, yeah. a real positive. About time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, um, they they themselves have claimed that it's the it's the biggest um, ruling since Marbo in terms of native title and, and, and really? rights. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So that's really good. Um, on the... Um, we know that the Labor Party's come under attack recently for its its policy to cut franking dividends for um, people, the people who don't pay tax particularly. I mean, that's the point of it. <laughs> These people, don't, they organise their, their, their finances so they don't actually pay any tax, but now they're screaming that they're not being given other people's taxes. Mm. It's having it taken away from them. Well... The investors are sharing a record $16 billion of franking credits from the latest earnings season, boosting income across all tax brackets and fueling an increasingly bitter debate about the possible axing of cash refunds by a future federal Labor government. So a record $16 billion in the earnings season, and that's money that, in fact, most of them, some of them probably do pay tax, but, but most of them... Um, get the 16, well, not that all get 16 million each, but they get that 16 billion shared between people who are actually getting money handed to them without making any contribution to the tax at all. Um, you know, it, and yet it's being portrayed as taking money off the little investors and the small mums and dads, etc. When most of the beneficiaries, as usual in these things, of course, are the super rich. Mm. Uh, but they're they're screaming and yelling, and they've now come up with a new tactic, which they found, which the Herald Sun came up with yesterday. Uh, that Australian women will be left disproportionately worse off by Labor's policy to axe refundable tax credits for self-funded retirees, according to new figures, etc., etc. So it's women, unfortunately, who are going to suffer again, apparently. But uh, I suspect the majority of women who are going to suffer are very, very rich women. 
Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. We, we might, um, I don't know whether Fiona will know, but if Fiona comes in today, we might ask her how many of the pensioners she knows are going <laughs> to suffer from this uh, <laughs> this uh, attack on their incomes. Mm. It's a um, curious intersection of lots of issues, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Uh, and also, in terms of um, the attempts to, to increase wages, and the I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang on, Tim. <laughs> in terms you of need the, to do your you need to do your angry voice again. I <laughs> I, the, in terms of the latest campaign by the ACTU, which Labor has sort of backed off uh, to raise to raise wages and the whole problem of wages, uh, a study by the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and, Re- and Social Research, um, which mightn't be the most radical body in the world, pr- said that um, lowest paid workers are more likely to be found living in the richest 20% of households than they are in the poorest 20%. So therefore, um, this, this is an argument why we don't need a wage rise, why the, why the wage rise is ridiculous, because it's going to go to these people living in the richest households. Now, it makes I, I, no sense whatsoever. Well, I, I think they're saying that the that those people in those really low-paid jobs are the daughters and sons of the wealthy doing a job on you know just doing a bit of work oh, uh, and enjoying the fun of being exploited by restaurateurs or whatever the hospitality industry or whatever else they work. That's a ridiculous um, argument. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. The, the bloke's name is Professor Wooden, um, which probably explains his head, um, but. Um, Anyway, that's that's the latest thing they've come up with to stop people getting a wage. Um, it's next to the continued from page one ACT what ACTU wants living wage in two years. Well, that's what they're fighting against because, for God's sake, the opposite of a living wage though has to be, I presume, a dying wage, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, is that correct or not correct? What do you think? I, I just don't know, Kevin. <laughs> Certainly not a living wage, though, is it? No, it's not a living wage, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but on the positive side of all that, those uh, young people, well, presumably those young people who are also going to lose, those households are going to lose their franking dividends, which is going to be awful. I mean, that's terrible. Being axed, axed is the word axed. Um, but also, um, there is some positive news on that front. You'll be pleased to know that the number that is the the sale of Ferraris in Australia rose by seventeen percent last year. So that's well, it's good, a relief it? that our economy is still vibrant. Kevin. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, in fact, Mr. Appleroth, the um, Herbie Appleroth, the CEO of Ferrari Australasia, said, "I'd say booming. Many of our models are sold out." The Ferrari Pista sold out. Um, Pista off, I suppose. The Pista Spider sold out. The etc. So there is. So it's booming, booming, and um, and you the 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 base level entry level Ferrari you can pick up, step up for about four hundred grand, and it goes up to uh, much much higher figures, mm. of course. Um, so I'm guessing you you've got one of those parked in your driveway, Kevin. Um, my bike's got. Has my bike got Ferrari on it? I can't remember now. It may have. It may have. I better check that out. We better go to a break and speak to Howard. We better. Okay. Mm. That could be said of a lot of people in public housing these days who have been thrown out. Actually, to no idea where they belong. Mm, um, on the line to tell us about that, Howard Morosi from People for Public Housing and several other groups. I think these days involved with the housing issue. But Howard. Um, we know there's been movement on this front in the last couple of weeks with the government moving into estates. What, what's going on out there? Yep, so they've moved into three estates. That's Northcote, Preston and North Melbourne. And uh, they've moved most of the people out. 
but there's still um, a substantial number of people, at least still in Northcote, that we know of. Um, and they've started drilling and started removing um, some of the fixtures from some of the properties. Uh, I'm not sure if the actual buildings have they've begun demolition yet. Uh, I believe they have in North Melbourne. I'm not sure about Northcote. Um, so um, for the families that remain, uh, life is quite intolerable at the moment. There's a lot of noise, uh, water disruption, and there's also the problem of potential asbestos uh, in the properties. Um, the government has told them uh, that there is no asbestos, but they want actual um, proper clearance from the authorities that there is no asbestos. And you would think that workers would be concerned about that as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, wasn't the Northcote estate redeveloped fairly recently? Uh, no, that was the um, Clifton Hill estate. Was oh, re- was it was yeah. very, very much refurbished a few years ago. Uh, Clifton Hill uh, is not one of the ones, uh, which, not one of the three that's been um, that started to um, do the work on, uh, but that's still on the list, the hit list. Uh, but they've actually, um, the residents here have refused to engage with the department um, so the department hasn't actually got to the stage of moving them out uh, so hopefully though the uh, residents at Clifton Hill will hold out um, if the government does try to come back and move mm. them out. A couple of weeks ago the Age had an article about these three estates um, or it said Preston, North Melbourne and Preston they said in that article but um, and then it, it generated a number of letters to the editor which um, certainly were sympathetic to the uh, to the public housing situation. Yep. Uh, so that, that article actually uh, was interesting because the government has changed a little bit about what their plan is. Uh, they originally were proposing only a 10% increase in the rebuild of social housing. Uh, social housing can mean either public housing or the housing association properties. So um, we believe that there's going to be no public housing when the tenants go back. It's all going to be at least managed by the housing associations. And according to the article, um, uh, the Port Phillip, the old Port Phillip Housing Association, which has been renamed Housing First, is going to run the new, what they call public and community housing units. So we believe if, if it's if a property is being run or managed by a housing association, it's not genuine public housing. Mm. So are they are they effectively saying now that there'll be no real public housing going back there at all? Uh, yeah, on our, on the way we define it, yep. Yeah. So it's good. And, and furthermore to that, um, uh, Friends of Public Housing actually has spoken to some people in, I think it was in uh, Brunswick, which wasn't one of the affected, the 11 affected inner city estates, but the residents were told that uh, they would be given a new landlord and it wouldn't be the government. And that's not even one of the redeveloped uh the, the property that is slated to be redeveloped, so it could well be that yeah. they're going to do that right across the board. Is that the Barclay Street uh, estate? Yeah, I think it could have been that one, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, well, it depends. There's a couple in Barclay Street, but the one I know is near my place, um, caters essentially for older people as well, so... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure yeah. which one it was. Yeah. Uh, so it's getting uh, well. It's it's down to um, well. I suppose the we said at the time the government winning the election by so much was a bad thing in terms of putting pressure on them. But 
And in fact, one of the letters to The Age made the point that they just ignored it totally in the election as an issue. Uh, and um, and then, of course, after the election again, came out and have just gone back to where they were. Yeah, so there was no debate. Uh, the Greens, of course, were very strong in their policy of uh, building enough public housing to clear the waiting list and to keep it as public housing and to stop the giveaway of uh, public housing to the housing associations. And the age actually did mention them, like, I think the day before the election, but it wasn't, it's not like it was debated in any way. Mm. So, you know, you can argue that there's no mandate for it because the public wasn't involved in the decision. Yeah. Eugenia, you got any comment on this? <laughs> I, I must admit I've been focused very much on the knobs and dials of the panel. Oh, right. <laughs> Eugenia's having that sort of day on the panel today. She's a <laughs> um, little distracted. Is there, Howard, is there any kind of um, self-organisation amongst the residents to kind of debate these issues? Or I'm glad you mentioned that. So um, we've got a meeting coming up this Saturday. Uh, it's a coalition of public housing groups, so it includes... Um, current tenants, but also academics like Libby Porter um, and other activists from the Greens and uh, people like myself. Um, so we're going to be meeting at four o'clock at the All Saints Church in uh, the corner of, on the corner of Walker Street and High Street, Northcote at four o'clock. Um, it's open to the public and we're going to talk about why we need a coalition while we need public housing, what's wrong with the government's program. Uh, we're going to establish, try to establish a new tenants group to replace the VPTA, the Victorian Public Tenants Association, which is, we believe is not properly representative of uh, public housing tenants. And we're going to discuss what to do now to resist the government's um, plans. Uh, so that's this Saturday. And of course, Joe... Toscano's got the Defend and Extend Public Housing Australia vigil 8 o'clock in the morning every Wednesday outside Parliament. Yeah. Libby mm. Porter, of course, you came on this program after she spoke at a couple of public meetings last year on this issue, uh, and she, um, she spoke wonderfully because she said, well, the government's got five arguments for why it wants to do this, and then she just demolishes all five spectacularly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the arguments... The arguments basically boil down to, from their point of view, they, they're saying that um, the uh, estates are unlivable. Well, they're not unlivable, uh, not all of them. Um, some of them are actually in very good condition, like Clifton Hill. Uh, Northcote was still livable. Um, but the main thing is, if, if an estate is at all livable, it should be left alone for various reasons because there's such a big waiting list that we need to be building... Um, mm. more public housing to uh, house those on the waiting list before we start refurbishing and updating and modernising. You know, no one's got any problem with modernising, but if, if you're modernising something uh, and you're not accommodating more people, you're not getting into the waiting list. And, of course, the other main, the other main reason is uh, the fact that they're actually using it as a ruse to actually transfer management away from the government to the housing associations or just transfer the whole thing, the title, across so it becomes uh, housing association property rather than public housing with all the problems that's involved in that. Um, and uh, the other thing is uh, a lot of the rebuild, or most of the rebuild, 75% of the land is actually going to be given over to private housing, which could all be public housing. It could all be public housing. 
mm. and there are arguments uh, that you know like we can't have that because it forms a ghetto well there's already those properties are already completely 100% public housing and although there are problems um, which you can read about in the Herald Sun and watch mm. on a current affair there's also a lot of positives uh, which you will um, here, if you speak to a public housing tenant, yeah. mm. and those public housing tenants would rather have the security and the um, lower rent of public housing rather than the um, the, the opposite of either public uh, private uh, housing or housing association property. Yeah. And so the arguments go on. I mean, there's also the argument that there are increasing um, social housing. Well, they're only increasing it by a very small amount, and um, the the number of uh, bedrooms in each unit is actually going down so that it's quite likely there's going to be fewer people accommodated mm. in social housing that's, mm. that's already there. So their arguments are very easy to criticise and, yeah. and uh, overturn. And in fact, residents at public meetings and, uh, and other interviews, and particularly people who have been refugees or come from different cultural backgrounds, talk about the wonderful community they feel in these estates. Yeah, yeah that's uh, across the board, you yeah. know. Um, the fact is that those people uh, will probably have nowhere to go and fall off the uh, fall out of the uh, the housing market altogether. A lot of them, mm. um, and many will become homeless. Uh, they have large families quite often, so building smaller bedrooms means that obviously, even if they can return, uh, they won't be able to fit into the new one and two bedroom properties. Mm. And how is there any plan of what to do with these larger families? No, I haven't heard of any. No. I mean, there is none. <laughs> oh, actually, terrible. no. Sorry, the government. Uh, when when Foley was still the minister, I won't say responsible minister. When Foley was still the minister, he um, was talking about the fact that they could remove walls between the apartments oh to accommodate the larger families. You know, which well, why not just build the um, <laughs> the right number in the first place? Okay. If we, if you want us to believe you, and secondly. Does that mean everyone's going to have two two uh, bathrooms and two, two laundries and two kitchens? Yeah. Give the kids something to do, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, a recent a report just last week, in fact, from the University of NSW and City Futures Research Centre, and also with the Community Housing Industry Association. And I'll come back to that in a second. That name, but they they say we're going to need one million and twenty four thousand new social and affordable homes, whatever that affordable means, of course, by 2036, and they're crying out for more government money, but uh, it's going the other way. And indeed, they're talking, they're not talking necessarily about public housing, of course. No, I haven't seen that report, but um, that sounds pretty much like what the federal labour policy is. Um, so their policy is to, is to boost massively the funding of the housing associations Yeah. Uh, to solve a problem. But the thing is, private housing, you know, you don't really need to build, uh, to, to subsidise a whole lot of private organisations and then hope they're going to provide uh, reasonable rents. What you need to do is regulate the, um, the private housing sector, uh, firstly by regulating rents, uh, having rent control, and secondly by, um, by getting, reducing the amount of investor ownership of private housing to allow people to own their own homes. And uh, if you actually, uh, firstly, stop the subsidies to investors um, and secondly, restrict the, uh, the loans to them and possibly even restrict the amount, of, um, the amount of properties that can be owned by investors, you'll find that the, uh, the, the 
uh, price of, of housing goes down even further than what we've already seen it go down. Um, so that will be it actually will be very affordable to people if you regulate it properly. You don't need yeah. to subsidise it. And indeed, the uh, AHURI, the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, in a report last year, um, said it estimated the... Well, I think it estimated, probably worked out the exact figure, but um, negative gearing and capital gains tax subsidies amount to $11.8 billion annually. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Exactly. Um, that could well... That would build a fair bit of public housing. Straight right? into public housing. And I think that would probably um, pretty much solve the waiting list. That possibly even in one year. I think uh, you were talking before about the cost of Ferraris. Uh, you know, <laughs> Have you got so one yourself? If you want to, oh, oh, I'd rather than money go to public housing. So you can sleep, in, you can sleep in the Ferrari. <laughs> you, could, you could accommodate them in a Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, it'd be luxurious. Um, but, uh, you know, the cost of building um, a new unit is probably something like $300,000. So if you divide um, 300000 into that $11 billion, I think that's about um, 30,000, something like that. Mm. I think it so works out. 30,000 yeah. new housing units from the capital gains tax anyway. Yeah, and, and the negative gearing subsidy yeah. in one year. And the Greens are talking about um, federally as well as in, in, in Victoria building enough. Um, well, federally, they, unfortunately, their policy is a bit weaker. They talk about social housing and they don't specify public housing. Um, but they're talking, I think it was something like half a million uh, new social housing units uh, within something like six years or ten years or something mm. like that. So the Greens have a policy, but again, you know, had we, if we do have a proper public debate, if, sorry, if we would have a proper public debate, the Greens would win hands down because they've got the policy and the other two... The other two major parties don't. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there because our other guests are here. But um, thanks for that, and we'll keep in touch. But we'll talk to you a fair few times over the year, I've got no doubt. <laughs> sure. Okay, thanks, thanks Howard. Howard Morosi there, who's with uh, People for Public Housing. I don't get the name right. I'm not sure, but sure about that. But anyway, <laughs> it's a group. That's the group. That's the group. And uh, we'll take a break because I presume our guests are in the building. Yep, they're right behind you. All right, we're back mm. on air. Um, this week we're talking about housing and we've got some special guests in the studio. Uh, one is Tonya Boll. Tonya's from the Northern and Western Homelessness Networks. Um, so it's an organisation that... Uh, <laughs> it's an organisation of about 50 other organisations managing 180 homelessness programs in Melbourne's North and West. Hi, Tonya. Hi. <laughs> um, and she's here to discuss a recent report that you've written called Crisis in Crisis. And our second guest is Gemma from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Hi, Gemma. Hi. Hey. Nice to be here. Right. And, yeah, well, that report, I mean, it's pretty devastating. What, what you say essentially in the report is that the places you're, because there's so little emergency accommodation, the places you're forced to send people to are so run down and terrible and the conditions so awful that you're actually going to refuse to send people there. But then, of course, where do you send them? That's, that's the next question. But... Tell us about this. On the report, the report talks about the conditions. Talk about some of the conditions of places you're forced to send people to because there's not enough emergency accommodation. Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. I mean, at the moment, there are uh, dodgy motels and rooming houses that homelessness services are forced to use to accommodate people. And the feedback that we're hearing from uh, consumers from the survey that we did was that often this accommodation is it's unclean it's unsafe and and also for families with children there isn't cooking facilities to be able to prepare meals for their children 
and and often these conditions for people that are presenting at homelessness services at a point where they're experiencing a life crisis and really vulnerable being in this accommodation mm. has a huge impact on their mental and physical health and often uh, creates more trauma in their lives as well. Yeah. Mm. And in fact, there's one story at the back of the report where um, talking about a woman and a partner at some stage um, moving from place to place because each place proved to be a major problem until they finally got suitable accommodation, but it took a long, long time. Absolutely, and and I think that really highlights um, one of the big things that's driving uh, the homelessness crisis is the lack of affordable um, permanent housing, and that's a really important part of the solution. Um, With this report, we're also really conscious that we need to take immediate action as well to make sure that um, we can be trying to find more safe and appropriate crisis accommodation options And um, as part of that, we are looking at taking some action, um, looking at um, considering doing uh, staggered boycotts of dodgy motels and rooming houses and um, so that we can actually put pressure on private operators to lift the standards of accommodation. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's quite a new level of um, sort of resistance that you guys are, are starting to enact now, right? Yeah, absolutely. So would, absolutely. You, would you say that it's a kind of worse situation than it's been for a while? Yeah, look, it's definitely been building for a long time, um, but we're, we're definitely at crisis point. And, you know, we're, we're hearing consumers and, and, you know, homelessness services, we, we actually want to, you know, create better options for people. You know, that, that's what people deserve. Mm, mm. Totally. In the previous interview, we were talking about a, a University of New South Wales report that came out last week saying we need a million and twenty-four thousand new um, public, well, they they call it social and, and affordable accommodation, but by um, twenty thirty-six. And we also pointed out that Ahuri came up with the figure that um, negative gearing, etc., costs us eleven point eight billion a year. Now that would build a lot of accommodation for what yeah. we're talking about, women. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a really essential part of this solution. Um, we're really calling for um, a significant increase in uh, public and community housing stock in Victoria um, to be able to provide long-term affordable housing for people on low incomes. And um, we're calling for uh, an increase of 3,000 units per year over a 10-year period. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, the, the hotels and motels or these places, these rooming houses you're sending people to, which are so terrible, are also costing a hell of a lot of money, which could be going back into um, better resources like public housing, for God's sake, or emergency accommodation. Absolutely, yeah. You're totally right there, Kevin. The the dodgy rooming houses and motels are, are really expensive, and um, that's where we actually think that you know, there's a lot of scope here to be using that money in other ways. So um, creating crisis accommodation that's self-contained um, and also injecting funding into long-term uh, affordable mm. social housing as well. Hague's position on all this, I'm sure it's pretty positive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course we 100% agree that, you know, for, for the people that are coming to see us who are in crisis, and this is a really increasing number of people that are coming to us in crisis. It used to be just a small proportion, say 20%, and it's gone up to I think it's 60% of people now are calling us who are already, are already homeless. So now we're having to use the homelessness um, system a lot more than we had to in the past. So when we do 
we want to know that we can send people to somewhere where they're going to be safe and they're going to be comfortable and where there's going to be an exit point out of that you know that's not in a week's time where there's yeah. somewhere where they can stay for six months until they get public housing and you know none of that's happening unfortunately at the moment and um you know we know that i know through a peer education program that i run a couple of the women in that program have been um, homeless and have been sleeping in their car and sleeping on the street and they both went to homeless services and you know they put them in a dodgy rooming house and they felt really unsafe and they said I would rather be sleeping in my car I'd rather be sleeping under a street lamp on my street than you know sleeping in this accommodation so Mm. you know it's really it's unacceptable for anyone and it's really unacceptable for older people. Sorry. Well, the, re- well the, re- the report talks about that. You, when you make the, I mean, you talk about people saying how frightened they are, and people dare, not even daring leaving their room in these places because of the violence going on in the building and all the other, you know, other things that they just find terrible. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like often, um, people who are experiencing homelessness, um, family violence is a, a really big cause of that. And for families living in this accommodation where they've already experienced violence, to be in an environment where there is violence happening around them, Mm. there are threats from other people in that accommodation, um, it has a massive impact. Mm. And I imagine that women would be disproportionately affected by this as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. That's right, and and that's the thing. In terms of some of the um, some of the solutions that we're, we're talking about, is you know trying to find other crisis accommodation options that are safe, uh, that also have cooking facilities, and even looking at um, you know there are some ideas out there around like tiny houses. There's an option more for single vulnerable people in terms of self-contained accommodation. Um, and also more crisis beds, more crisis-supported accommodation for people who really need that that support. And as would, well. would that be a sort of service that a lot of the homelessness networks could run? The crisis beds. Well, that's the thing. There, there are crisis beds out there, but often what we're finding as services is often they're full. There's a huge demand, so really we're needing needing more crisis accommodation as well. Mm. And what's the government reaction when you put this to them? Well, I think I think the government um, the government acknowledges that um, you know we, we need to be looking at um, different options um, and and also in terms of the the funding that we receive, thinking about how we can use those funds to actually resolve people's homelessness. So um, definitely, there is some work in that space at the mm. moment. Um, but I suppose a big part of you know looking at doing a staggered boycott and also paying for other um, better uh, crisis accommodation is that we would need an injection of funds to be able to fund mm. that as well mm. in the short term. And Hague's, mm. Hague's regularly trying to talk to government anyway, even if you, they don't often ignore you or don't <laughs> don't accept the invitation. But uh, you keep trying this as well, don't you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, of course, we're always banging on about <laughs> more public and social mm. yeah, housing for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, just I just want to ask you one thing, and um, the Herald Sun's been running one of our favourite newspaper <laughs> has been running um, this our, about our commitment we're for you etc. Running these ads about how wonderful they are, and they had one this week which talks about how they do so much for the community in all sorts of ways, including apparently lifting Indigenous people out of poverty, which I didn't realise. But anyway, <laughs> um, they. Um, 
They say Ask Izzy is one such story, a directory for the homeless providing information on housing, food and legal help, which has passed one million searches, a much-needed tool for the rising rate of homelessness in Australia. So obviously the Herald Sun is, is the big answer to homelessness. Um, have you found this? <laughs> I mean, I think with Ask Izzy, I mean, it is a tool to, to help pe- um, people navigate the homelessness system, which can be quite complicated. So, I mean, I think it, that is a helpful tool. But As long as you've got a, got a mobile phone or something, of course. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's a tool. It's not in terms of solutions. It's also about affordable housing. That's mm. that's a really important part as well. There's really no solution to this crisis other than more affordable housing, is there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's been the theme of this um, Wednesday, third Wednesday every month for years now. <laughs> if we keep trying, we really do keep trying. Yeah. So any other comments about the report and uh, what, what the response has been thus far? Look, just that um, as a network, as over 50 homelessness agencies there's a strong commitment um, to do things differently, that, you know, we're hearing the voices of consumers. We get that things need to change and, and that's where we're really committed to having having action, immediate action around it and continuing to advocate for uh, mm. affordable long-term housing yeah. as well. The, the question I asked earlier, actually, if... if if you're not going to, if you refuse to send people to these dreadful places, where do you send them? That becomes the problem, doesn't it? And that's the thing. One of the actions that we are considering is a staggered boycott. So that's where, you know, we acknowledge that at the moment there aren't other options that we can use. So, you know, we're trying to find ways that we, we still have some options we can use while still putting the pressure on particular operators over a period of time mm. um, to actually lift lift the standards because there's a, a great deal of money being given to these private operators. So um, we do actually have some power to negotiate and influence that as well. So how would that work um, specifically? Would that mean, so, mean you refusing to send people to a certain hotel for a period of a few months or yeah so that the kind of thing? so we're still working out the details of that at the moment but um it's looking at yeah targeting particular dodgy motel um and Remy house operators mm. for a period of time and then during that time putting the pressure on really negotiating around the standards needing to lift before we will start using them again mm. yeah sounds like a great yeah. strategy mm. And um, the the Age in the past couple of weeks had a, a story about um, this is for House of the Age, this is your sort of clients um, about um, the home care packages the government puts out, which mm-hmm. it said were being abused totally, and all sorts of people were rorting it, etc. And I mean, you yeah. um, you obviously you must deal with these sort of people who who need this. Um, was the, was, the, yeah. was the situation on the ground as bad as the age made out? Um, so we are actually we are doing a new project um, just starting this year that's about helping people to navigate the aged care system. And so far from the people that we've seen, we've seen that it is it's there are huge barriers in terms of being able to access aged care in the first place if people are disadvantaged. I mean, people have to make a telephone call. Um, which means that, you know, if you need an interpreter, that can be difficult. Um, you know, there's wait times and that sort of thing. There are wait times, even when someone gets an assessment for an aged care package, um, there can be wait times of one to two years um, for the package itself. And then people are, you know, given lower level services, really basic services, um, which may or may not meet their needs. You know, we hear stories of people having to go into 
residential aged care because they've just waited so long for their package and they haven't got it and they've just not been able to manage and had to go into residential aged care where they wouldn't have to anyway. So, um, yeah, and definitely with the privatisation of the system, of course, there's huge issues um, with that, with people, you know, paying a lot of money. And, you know, the other day I was talking to someone that was saying that they're taking 35% of what they're paying. I think, no, it was even 50% of what they were paying in admin fees in terms of um, their services. So That's outrageous. Yeah, it's really outrageous. So, I mean, we're only starting to work in this area, but I think that as we roll on, this project goes for a year and a half, and I think as we roll on, we'll start to see really what um, the issues are. But so far, the issues have definitely been um, access is a huge issue in itself. Mm. Mm. So, so the idea of the idea is a good one, obviously, but it's but it's being rorted, and it from the sees that seems a number of very dodgy people are moving into the industry mm. and charging exorbitant fees for providing bugger all, really. Yeah, mm. exactly, and it seems like you can get different. Um, you know, you could pay like four hundred dollars for your cleaning, or you could pay a hundred dollars for your cleaning, and you know the service may or may not be very different. So. Um, yeah, it seems like I think with the Royal Commission, more and more information about this is going to come out, and hopefully it'll lead to better regulation of the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And there was one item that cost a hundred dollars, and the the carer charged six hundred dollars to the user or whatever for, wow. for that yeah. item or whatever. I mean, they're, and, and they're the, clearly the, inflating costs of everything. And the carers are getting paid often, you know, minimum wage. So yeah. you know, where's all the money going? Well, the other factor is that many many of the carers have no training either to deal with old, older people and dementia and the you know those yeah. the things that you'd really need training to to work with. Yeah, or very limited training. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. It'll be very interesting to see what comes out of the royal commission. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, Gemma, did you want to give us a bit of an update on, on what's going on with HAG generally? Um, generally, we yeah, we just have so much going on at the moment. And we have a lot going on in terms of the aged care work. Um, different agencies are coming to us that are wanting to work with us, doing research projects um, and that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, as I was saying, the crisis element is really increasing, unfortunately. And, the you know, the type of work that we're doing is changing as well because of that so Mm. yeah it's just crazy at the moment but um in a good way we're hoping that we're getting um you know a louder voice as well in the community and also to government so Mm. yeah and it's diversity week this week right you mentioned that you're doing some research around that yeah it is diversity week and i'd actually come here prepared well kind of prepared to talk about the work that we do um in terms of getting access for culturally diverse go on Take it, take it away. Oh, really? How long do I have? Two minutes. We've got, we've got, uh, yeah, we've got about four minutes. Four minutes. Okay, yeah. I can do it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to mention some of the work that HAG's been doing in terms of um, helping people from culturally diverse communities to access our services. So um, a project that we did in 2015 has had a couple of further sort of iterations in the last few years, um, and we've increased the number of clients um, or the proportion of our clients from culturally diverse backgrounds from 35% of our client group to 50%. It's usually now between 50 and 60%. Um, and it's because of the work that we've been doing in terms of skilling up bilingual workers to go and talk to their communities about housing issues, um, about what type of housing is available for older people so that older people um, know about us from the different communities and can come and use our services um, yeah, and it seems to have worked really well. And um, we've also done a project where we did a bit of 
provided some training to some of the homelessness services about uh, working with culturally diverse communities and we've now we have a cultural diversity reference group that we talk to on a monthly basis that sort of feeds into all of our internal policies and uh, the way that we work you know we consult them about the way that we work at HAG um, and that's been great and now we're using the bilingual workers to deliver information about aged care and homelessness as part of this new project that that we're having so yeah I sort of wanted to thank all of the bilingual workers that we have at HAG for all their hard work and And they'll all be listening (laughs) obviously (laughs) they are bilingual so (laughs) Um, yeah, and just to say that, you know, um, without them, um, yeah, we wouldn't be able to access so many of the communities that we're mm. helping. So. Yeah. Mm, fantastic. And uh, just before, I'm going, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I'm just going to ask Tanya if you if your work intersects at all with cultural diversity in multilingual communities in terms of, like, crisis accommodation. Look, absolutely. Like, there's a very large percentage of culturally and linguistically diverse people that are um, presenting as homeless and... Um, yeah, I think it sounds really great, the work that you're doing at HAG in terms of really understanding the needs of a core community and, mm. and how that influences services. That's yeah. great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, I was going to say the issues today have dovetailed because we talked earlier about um, public housing estates being knocked over, etc. cetera. Uh, but, of course, that is impacting on the amount, of, the amount of emergency accommodation that's available for both of your groups, isn't it? I mean, the fact that there's now less rooms available in public housing makes it even more difficult to find emergency accommodation. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the thing. Um, for people, they're needing that long-term housing. That that really needs to increase. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Mm. All right, so we're, uh, we're up to... We've got a minute to go if you want to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to say a really big thank you to 3CR for um, giving us this opportunity to talk about the campaign and... Um, yeah, we're, we're really hoping that this is going to have an impact yeah. and create change. If people wanted more information about your groups and what you're doing and wanted to help in any way, um, how can they contact you? Sure. So um, we do have a website um, for the Northern and Western um, Local Area Service Network, um, which I can give to you. We'll put a link in the show notes. Fantastic. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And of course, well, we always give Hags com- com- give us your, give us your contacts. So um, yeah, you can go to our website as well, www.oldertenants.org.au. Um, but you can always give us a call on nine six five four seven three eight nine, or if you need housing help, it's one three hundred seven six five one seven eight. Right. Repeat that last one again, because yeah. Yeah, I'm just lucky I can remember. One three hundred seven six five one seven eight. Bring it. Well awesome, awesome memory. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming okay. in, both of you. And next week, Kevin, it's we the fourth Wednesday. Yeah. Of the month, so we're going to be talking about frog senses. That's, oh, that's just next week. I was going to ask you what happened to that. Yeah, no, it's happening. Week. Oh, good, <laughs> the okay. long-awaited frog senses. The, the board of works whom we had last, not Melbourne Water at least. The, who, I'm, <laughs> You're I'm about going 30 years back. out of date. Well, I've, I've had trouble with the water works in the past. But anyway, um, yeah, Melbourne, we had Melbourne Water on before Christmas talking about the damage to Stony Creek from that terrible fire last year. But they've asked now, can they come on and talk about a frog senses? So we'll, uh, frogs are in the news next week. Mm. Okay. Um, okay, and stay tuned, everyone, for Joe Toscano with Annika Swell this week. Terrific.